Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Coach Julie Brodian, a motivational speaker. He came in there and he was talking to the team about expectations and, you know, how your mind should be. And he passed out a uh, little five by seven card and pencils and he says i want you to he goes uh where's your goal for next year in all my years at georgia nobody ever talked national championship everybody was talking acc championship and all the seniors popped up says national champion he says, when does that reality come true we said january 1st 1981 he goes where he said new orleans louisiana the sugar bowl he said oh, i don't want anybody in here to write down january 1st 1981 national champions and I want you to I want you to take this up on your mirror every morning. So when you're brushing your hair or brushing your teeth, you'll see it. So I know it's in a, a box upstairs. I know way no way in the world I'd, I'd get rid of that thing. From Moonlight Magic Productions, welcome to Hidden Yardage. I'm your host, Joe Moore. This podcast is a journey back to the 1980 college football season through the memories of those that played, coached, and covered it. New episodes, released each Tuesday, will carry listeners through that season one week at a time. For more information, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. This is Episode 1, At the Battle's End. 39 years ago, as the 80s began, the saga of college football authored one of its greatest chapters ever. Following a decade dominated by the same powerful programs that had always run the sport, 1980 featured a miracle season by America's oldest public university that resulted in the first of five straight titles captured by schools that had never won a championship before. It saw the game's greatest defensive player come as close as any defender ever had to claiming the sport's most prestigious individual award, while a quarterback from California shattered passing records and threatened the sanctity of college football's oldest conference. It had scandals and star recruits, Sooner Magic in the run and shoot, and the last game played between Princeton and Rutgers, whose first meeting in 1869 started the college game 150 years ago. It was a season that changed everything. Slowly but surely, the 1970s are disappearing. The 1980s will be upon us. What a decade it is coming up. In 1980, the country was turning the page on a new era. The 70s had seen the American spirit withered. The nation was battered throughout the decade. Watergate, Vietnam, inflation, the depression, and the energy crisis. It was eager for a change. And so too, it seemed, was college football. The sport had long been one of haves and have-nots. Upstart programs were frequently strangled in their cribs victims of the ruthless hegemony that ruled the sport. At the end of the 1979 season, exactly half of the first 44 national championships had been won by just four schools, with only one first-time champion in the last 16 seasons. As the 1980 schedule began, only 18 out of 136 eligible programs had ever won an AP national championship. College football was an elitist society, and it appeared to have no room at the top for interlopers. It was like a cartel. The same 10 teams were in the preseason top 10 every year, and then the same second 10. Um, and, you know, if you're a team like Alabama, it's like, it's just a question of which major bowl are you going to play in. 
oh, you played in the Orange Bowl last year. Well, you need to play in the Sugar Bowl this year. And so some of those were, were foregone conclusions. There was just not a lot of upward mobility. But look closely enough at the dawn of the new decade, and one could see signs that the college football landscape was changing. Of the six schools that won championships in the 1970s, only three entered the new decade with the same coach that had led them to the title. And a fourth, Notre Dame, had its coach announced that the 1980 season would be his last. Program-building giants like Arkansas's Frank Broyles, Texas's Darrell Royal, and Ohio State's Woody Hayes had left coaching in the late 70s, and a new crop of young men with names like Paterno, Holtz, and Robinson sought to establish themselves in their wake. Still, college football was an arms race, and schools with neither the pedigree nor the war chest to do battle were forced to watch from the sidelines. Until, in 1973, when college football's smallest schools staged a coup. Using their majority of votes, they forced the game's blue bloods to accept scholarship limitations for all programs. Teams could now sign no more than 30 players per year and could carry no more than 95 players on scholarship. The rule would go into effect in the 1978 season and was the first of two major developments that would forever alter the long-standing inequality of the game. The second came in 1977 with the formation of the College Football Association, a lobbying group of 63 of the largest and most powerful programs who banded together to wrestle control of TV rights away from the NCAA once and for all. College football indeed was changing, but some things appeared immutable. And here comes the Crimson Tide. 11-0, and the Tide really only had two close ball games this year. The 1979 season ended with a national championship for the University of Alabama. It was the second straight AP title and fifth overall for the Crimson Tide and its legendary coach, Paul Bear Bryant, who it seemed could do no wrong. One newspaper wrote of Bryant, in Alabama, only God is superior to the Bear, although that is not a unanimous opinion. When the 1980 season began, Alabama had won 18 in a row over a span of nearly two years. Nothing or nobody, it appeared, could stop the tide. In his season preview, George Cunningham wrote, The Grand Canyon isn't wide enough to cover the gap that separates Alabama from the rest of the SEC. As if Bryant's team needed any help, the NCAA ranked the tide schedule as the easiest among the nation's top 62 teams. But heavy is the head that wears the crown, and Alabama's throne was not without its challengers. The 1980 preseason rankings listed Alabama at number two. The top spot belonged to Ohio State. The Buckeyes were a perfect 11-0 in the 1979 regular season, but their title hopes were dashed in the Rose Bowl by the USC Trojans and Heisman Trophy winner Charles White's last-minute touchdown. On Alabama's heels were the third-ranked Pitt Panthers, featuring Hugh Green at the head of an impossibly talented defense and a sophomore quarterback named Dan Marino. Rounding out the top five were USC, unbeaten in its last 20 contests, but ineligible for a postseason bowl game due to academic violations, and Oklahoma, with its vaunted wishbone offense and seven straight Big 8 conference championships. Other contenders included a talented Nebraska team and Heisman Trophy favorite quarterback Mark Herman's Purdue Boilermakers. The Texas Longhorns, ranked 10th, played the first game of the season, knocking off sixth-ranked Arkansas in Austin on Labor Day. Lurking towards the bottom of the pole at number 16 were the Georgia Bulldogs, not since Woody Hayes' Buckeyes in 1968 had a team come from outside the preseason top 10 to finish the year ranked number one. But there was reason for optimism in Athens. On Easter Sunday in 1980, fans of the University of Georgia woke up to find their prayers had been answered. The top-rated and most sought-after high school senior in America had signed his letter of intent to play college football. He was to become a Georgia Bulldog and would play between the hedges at Sanford Stadium just 70 miles from where he grew up. When Herschel Jr. Walker was born at Talmadge Memorial Hospital, a typist misspelled his name on his birth certificate, and it read Hershey. The error went unnoticed, until he applied for a Social Security card in 1978. The local judge in Johnson County had to get involved to correct the problem, and not a moment too soon, for it wasn't long before every college football coach in the country knew the name Herschel Walker. As a young man and a brother of six, Herschel was quiet and introspective, but fiercely competitive. He was slow to develop physically, and stayed away from organized sports as a child. But he couldn't avoid competing in backyard foot races with the other kids, especially his older sister, Veronica. 
When he was finally able to outsprint all of his siblings, Herschel would race the family's pet horse, Smokey, all over the farm. As a high school junior, thanks to a strict diet of hamburgers and Gatorade and a daily routine of 300 sit-ups and push-ups, Walker had developed a strapping physique. He now weighed more than 200 pounds, with massive legs and a powerful upper body. His teammates called him Hulk, and his mother had to buy extra fabric to reshape his three-piece suit. His muscle-bound frame was still incredibly fast, running the 100-yard dash in 9.9 seconds. Piling up yardage as a running back and growing into a local legend, Walker began to attract attention from recruiters across the country. In 1979, the attention got to be so much that his father ripped the telephone out of the wall and reordered phone service under an unlisted number. There were so many coaches traveling regularly to tiny Wrightsville, Georgia for a chance to recruit Walker that they would organize volleyball games to keep themselves occupied when he was in class. So committed were the Bulldogs to landing Walker that assistant coach Mike Caven moved to Wrightsville and lived in a hunting cabin that belonged to a Georgia booster. When he found out that Clemson, one of Georgia's biggest rivals for Walker's services, had offered a track and field scholarship to his older sister Veronica, Head football coach Vince Dooley told Caven that the Bulldogs would offer her one, too. The only problem was that Georgia didn't yet have a women's track and field program, so it started one. The seduction of Walker continued through the fall of 1979 and into the spring of 1980. Then, on the first Sunday in April, Walker came inside from tinkering with his motorcycle and had made his decision. He would attend the University of Southern California and follow in the great tradition of tailback U. To this day, it's not clear why he changed his mind, but Walker has told the story that he decided to leave it up to a coin flip. At the kitchen table with his family, he flipped a coin, best out of five, and Georgia won. He signed his letter of intent that afternoon. Walker's talents were beyond doubt, but some questioned his ability to succeed in the rugged SEC since he had played football for tiny Johnson County High against some of the smallest schools in the state. Walker's school was so small and underfunded that the football team didn't wear jerseys, but instead used shoe polish to draw numbers on oversized t-shirts donated by a Wrightsville factory. But before the rest of the conference could put Walker's hype to the test, he had to survive summer camp against teammates like Eddie Weaver and Frank Ross. I remember the first time we got to hit him was on 7-on-7, so you know where the ball was going, in between the tackle and the tight end. And I remember the first time he got the ball, we just, Eddie Weaver, myself, and, and Nate Taylor just nailed him. And, of course, we're talking smack to him. And uh, I remember him putting the ball down, getting up and running back to the huddle. Didn't say a word. You could tell he had some spunk to him, but he never did do anything major, even the scrimmage or anything. Leading up to the season opener against Tennessee, Coach Vince Dooley announced that Walker would play, but would not start against the Volunteers. The freshman had survived camp, but had done little to distinguish himself from the other backs on the team. Some coaches even wondered if he would ever be an effective college player. In time, Walker would answer all questions about his ability and lay claim to one of the greatest freshman seasons in college football history. When the Bulldogs landed in Knoxville, Tennessee for their tilt with the hometown volunteers, the view outside the bus windows on the ride to team headquarters was filled with even more orange than expected. Construction projects diverted traffic as the town busied itself to make accommodations for the 1982 World's Fair. The event would become one of the highest attended fairs in the country's history and introduce the world to touchscreen technology and cherry coke. That summer, renovations were also taking place inside Neyland Stadium. Seated on the banks of the Tennessee River, the mammoth 60-year-old home of the Vols was expanding with 10,000 additional seats to completely enclose its north end zone. The upgrade ensured that when more than 95,000 fans streamed through the turnstiles on Saturday to cheer on Big Orange, it would be the largest crowd to ever watch a college football game in the South. Despite being in neighboring states and sharing a conference since the SEC was founded nearly 50 years earlier, the 1980 game between Georgia and Tennessee would be their first meeting since 1973, and just the 18th time the two schools had played one another. But what the rivalry lacked in familiarity, it made up for with contempt. And never was that more true than in 1968. That season, the Volunteers hosted the Bulldogs on September 14th in the earliest season opener ever for Tennessee. But the real battle between the two teams started in the middle of summer. Georgia's coach, Vince Dooley, received a telegram from Knoxville, 
informing him that the playing surface at Neyland Stadium would be changed prior to the game from natural grass to tartan turf. Dooley and the Bulldogs' athletics director, George Eaves, were incensed and immediately protested to the SEC, saying, Georgia doesn't want to be a guinea pig when so much is riding on a football game. The Bulldogs had played on a synthetic surface the year before, on the famed AstroTurf in Houston. But tartan turf was something new, featuring a tighter weave and a softer surface. And Neyland Stadium would be the first ever to feature the substance, installed at a discounted rate by its developer, the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, or 3M. Earlier that same year, a scientist at 3M, working on a super-strong adhesive, had accidentally discovered a slightly sticky substance that would later become the post-it note. But Georgia got the memo loud and clear when the SEC ruled that the game would go on, grass or no grass. Before the game began, curious onlookers walked the field for a close-up view of the headline-making surface. The university was thoughtful enough to install sandboxes around the field so fans could extinguish their cigarettes without burning holes in the turf, nicknamed Doug's Rug after Volunteers head coach Doug Dickey. Although the fans were catching a glimpse of the trend-setting future of sports surfaces, what they didn't see were the famous checkerboard end zones, a casualty of the new carpet that wouldn't return to Tennessee home games for another 21 years. The contest was also significant, as it featured Tennessee sophomore end Lester McLean, marking the first time an African-American had played for either school. Ultimately, the game, nationally televised by ABC and covered in a full-color feature for Sports Illustrated, would come down to the final play, and end in a controversial 17-17 tie. With no time left on the clock, the Volunteers completed a 30-yard touchdown pass that appeared to hit the ground, then added a successful two-point conversion to draw even. The following Monday, WAGA-TV in Atlanta interrupted its regular morning programming to announce that the SEC Committee for Fair Play had reversed the ruling on Tennessee's completed touchdown pass and awarded the game to Georgia. The celebration was short-lived, as the press release proved to be a hoax. The Bulldogs would have the last laugh, however, as they went on to capture the 1968 SEC Championship. Before the opening game of the 1980 season, Tennessee was again installing a new playing surface at Neyland Stadium. This time, the manufacturer claimed that the artificial grass was so soft an egg could fall on it from eight feet without breaking. It made no such protective claim for opposing quarterbacks, like Georgia sophomore Buck Ballou. Ballou took over the starting job in week three of the 1979 season, but ended the year sidelined with a fractured ankle, suffered against Auburn, the only conference loss for Georgia in a 6-5 campaign. Now, back at full health, Ballou was ready to helm a talented Bulldogs team, but he would do so without Bill Pace, his offensive coordinator from the year before. That's because Pace had left Dooley's staff to run the offense at Tennessee. For the past five seasons, Pace and Georgia's defensive coordinator, Irk Russell, shared an office in Athens and drilled against one another on the practice field. Now, in the 1980 season opener, they do battle with SEC superiority on the line. As the Bulldogs completed their customary walkthrough in Neyland Stadium on the Friday night before the game, somebody found a piece of paper with a bunch of offensive plays written on it. Irk and his staff spent the night trying to decipher all of it, but from the way the game started, didn't seem like the dogs gained any advantage. The temperature was sweltering in Knoxville as Georgia and Tennessee took the field before 95,288 fans. Thermometers on the field read 120 degrees, and concession stands ran out of ice before halftime. The Volunteers won the toss, and on their first play from scrimmage, Tennessee fumbled, and Georgia recovered deep in enemy territory. It would be a long time before anything else would go right for the Bulldogs. Just two plays later, Georgia fumbled the ball right back to Tennessee during an ill-fated reverse. After an exchange of punts and another Bulldogs fumble, Georgia's defense held once more, and the first quarter ended with a score tied at zero. Early in the second, and facing fourth down from the Georgia one-yard line, Tennessee tried to muscle the ball over the goal line, but was stopped cold by the Dogs. Georgia would not escape unscathed, however, as the third Bulldogs fumble of the game led to a safety and a 2-0 Tennessee lead. The ensuing Volunteers' possession covered 54 yards in just eight plays and ended in a touchdown to give Tennessee a 9-0 advantage. After giving the first and second team running backs ample opportunities and desperate for a spark on offense, Dooley turned midway through the second quarter and motioned for the freshman phenom Herschel Walker to enter the game. 
the most decorated recruit in Georgia football history, was about to play his first college snap. But there was one problem. The freshman running back couldn't find his helmet. Seated in the back of a chartered plane somewhere high above Alabama, Florida State quarterback Rick Stockstill looked out the window and anxiously crumpled a paper napkin. Soon, the plane would touch down at the Metropolitan Airport in Baton Rouge, the capital city of Louisiana. But for the 58 Seminole players on board, their final destination had a more ominous name. Death Valley, home of the LSU Tigers. A quaking stadium built in 1924 that on game days became the fourth largest city in Louisiana and produced a din that Bear Bryant compared to being inside of a drum. After three years of waiting, Stockstill was finally about to make the first start of his college career, and it would come in front of 80,000 rabbit LSU Tiger fans. When we went there in 79, back then at LSU Stadium, they had dormitories or classrooms in the stadium. And when we went in there Friday, you know, to have our walkthrough or just walk around the stadium, you know, people were up there pouring trash cans of water on us. You know, as we walked in, they just dumped us with water. So we were ready for it in 80 when we came in there. So a bunch of us had, when we were going in there, we had umbrellas. So when they dumped that water on us, we, we were ready for them. But, you know, they got that big tiger out there in the front and coming out of our locker room and the guy would, you know, shock it, poke it, where it'd growl at us. And the thought was enough to cause Stockstill to lose sleep throughout the week, but he had been eating more than usual. Less room for the butterflies, he told a reporter. But the visiting 13th-ranked Seminoles led by Bobby Bowden weren't the biggest story in town on this opening weekend of the season, not since nine months earlier, when a plane mysteriously wandered a thousand miles off course and forever altered the fate of the LSU football program. Following a 7-4 season in 1979, the Tigers parted ways with Charles McClendon, the longest tenured and winningest coach in school history. LSU wanted him gone sooner, but Athletics Director Paul Dietzel, himself a former head coach of the Tigers, successfully lobbied the school's administration to allow Charlie Mack to finish out his contract and save face in his role as president of the American Football Coaches Association. This gave Dietzel time to begin a nationwide search for a head coach that would restore the LSU program to greatness. He made a list of the 25 coaches he considered to be the best in America, based on two criteria, honesty and a proven record of head coaching success. After months of screenings and interviews, Dietzel made his recommendation for head coach to the LSU Board of Supervisors, describing the man he'd chosen as a combination of St. Paul, St. John, and Newt Rockney. The board approved his recommendation unanimously, and 34-year-old Robert E. Bo Rhine became the 24th coach in Tigers history. Rhine still had three years left on his head coaching contract at NC State, but he was permitted to break that contract without penalty, so long as he was leaving to coach at a college with more tradition. LSU fit that description, and Ryan was no stranger to big-time college football. A two-sport star at Ohio State, he twice led the football team in receiving, and even helped the Buckeyes win the 1966 College World Series. After injuries shortened his professional career, he joined Woody Hayes' staff as a graduate assistant in Columbus, before moving on to an assistant's role under Lou Holtz at William & Mary. He followed Holtz to Raleigh, North Carolina, where he ran the Wolfpack's offense, a twin-veer system that helped NC State win 26 games in three years. His success caught the attention of Arkansas's legendary coach, Frank Broyles, who hired Ryan to be his offensive coordinator. When Holtz left NC State for the New York Jets two years later, Ryan was brought back to Raleigh and became the sport's youngest head coach at just 30 years old. In four seasons, Ryan's Wolfpack teams won two bowl games and captured the 1979 ACC Championship, still the school's last such title. At his introductory press conference in Baton Rouge, Ryan preached cautious optimism, but the excitement among the Tiger faithful was palpable. There's no Cinderella's glass slipper here. There's no one coach that there he is for LSU. But I promise you this, uh, if hard work, dedication, and respect for tradition mean anything, uh, we're going to be successful at LSU. Thank you very much. Ryan's first action as head coach was to pull all the current LSU coaches off the recruiting trail, and along with four assistants that he brought from NC State, take over the job of rebuilding the Tigers roster himself. 
Early on the morning of January 10, 1980, just 42 days into his new job, Ryan and his assistant, Greg Williams, who also coached under Bobby Bowden at West Virginia, set out on a recruiting trip to Shreveport. They decided to make the 250-mile trip by car, since heavy fog would have delayed their flight. They visited four recruits, making their last stop at the home of prospective lineman Bobby Agnor. The weather had turned ugly, with several thunderstorm cells in the area, and Agnor's parents suggested Ryan spend the night at their home. Williams, who planned on staying at a local hotel before making more visits the next day, offered to drive his head coach back to campus. But Ryan was scheduled to be in Mississippi the next day to visit another prospect and declined the offers, instead opting for Williams to take him to the Shreveport Airport. There, a Cessna Conquest twin-engine plane that had been loaned to LSU was waiting to take the coach back to Baton Rouge. It should have been a 40-minute flight that would put Coach Ryan on the ground at 10.07 p.m. local time. Shortly after takeoff, the pilot radioed that he'd run into bad weather and asked for a routing to the east to avoid the storms. Then, unexpectedly, the plane made a turn towards Memphis and kept climbing. The plane was tracked on radar, station to station, as it continued its wayward eastern path for four hours. Campus officials became concerned when Ryan didn't arrive in Baton Rouge and made calls to alert the authorities. Eventually, Johnson Air Force Base dispatched two F-4 fighter jets to intercept the plane above North Carolina. Rescue pilots made two passes from about 500 feet away to try and get the plane to turn back. But no signs of life could be seen, only the red glow of the cockpit. As the plane continued to climb to over 41,000 feet, more than 8,000 feet above the maximum altitude for the craft, an F-106 fighter jet took up the chase and escorted it until it crashed down into the black waters of the Atlantic Ocean, off the coast of Virginia. Authorities speculated that something had gone wrong with the plane's pressurization system that caused the two men on board to lose consciousness. No wreckage was ever recovered. Ironically, Ryan's tragic flight that had taken him 1,000 miles off course flew him directly over Raleigh, North Carolina, where his two daughters were sleeping. Ryan would never have been on that plane had LSU been able to hire its first choice, Bobby Bowden. Dietzel offered the job to Bowden halfway through the 1979 season, and as he considered the position, his Seminoles played LSU. He told his wife Anne before the game that if he couldn't beat the Tigers, maybe he should join them. Florida State won that game, and Bowden turned down the offer to stay in Tallahassee. The LSU job went to Ryan, who tragically never coached a game for the Tigers. Ten years earlier, while coaching at West Virginia, Bowden came close to accepting an offer to become the head coach at in-state rival Marshall, but ultimately decided to stay in Morgantown. Marshall hired its second choice, Rick Tolley. In November of 1970, Tolley and 74 others were killed when their plane crashed into the side of a West Virginia mountain upon returning from a football game against East Carolina. Following Ryan's death, Dietzel moved quickly to find a replacement, and after an emergency meeting, announced that the job would pass to former LSU player and assistant coach Jerry Stovall. Stovall had the unenviable job of steering the program through the aftermath of its young coach's tragic death while preparing his team for a difficult opener against Bowden and Florida State. The Seminoles had high hopes for 1980 after going undefeated and playing in the Orange Bowl in 1979. The offense had to replace both Triggermen in its dual quarterback system, along with a handful of other contributors that had graduated. The strength of this team would be a suffocating defense that returned eight starters, including senior all-world nose tackle Ron Simmons, who finished ninth in the Heisman Trophy voting as a junior. The Tigers and Seminoles kicked off the 1980 season on a rainy Saturday night in front of a sold-out and soaking-wet crowd in Tiger Stadium in a contest that the oddsmakers labeled a pick'em. LSU won the coin toss and elected to receive. On the very first play, Simmons forced a fumble that was recovered by the Knowles. After three conservative running plays, Bill Capice booted a field goal to give Florida State the early 3-0 lead. It would be more than enough points on this night. On LSU's fifth play, Simmons struck again, forcing another fumble that led to yet another Capice three-pointer. As the Tigers' offense continued to struggle, Coach Stovall swapped quarterbacks, but to no effect. At halftime, Florida State led 6-0, 
content to play keep-away and force LSU to move the ball against its crushing defense. But if Bowden's Seminoles were to continue to hold the Tigers in check after intermission, they would have to do so without Simmons, who left the game after getting his ankle rolled up on in a pile and would not return. Before coaching at Florida State, Bowden spent 10 years at West Virginia, the first four as offensive coordinator under Jim Carlin. Carlin was a no-nonsense leader that demanded results, but also had the respect and admiration of his players and coaches alike. He had staked his career on walking into downtrodden college football outposts and turning them into winners. First, he took over in Morgantown, West Virginia, and after just four seasons, led the Mountaineers to a 10-1 record in 1969, complete with the school's first bowl game victory in more than 20 years. Following that breakthrough, Carlin moved on to helm the Texas Tech Red Raiders, a program which to that point was best known perhaps for its still unbroken record of 39 punts in a single game. Only four years after arriving in Lubbock in 1970, Carlin led the Raiders to an 11-1 season, and his five-year win total of 37 games was just 10 fewer than the program had claimed in the entire decade of the 1960s. But when Carlin left the Southwest for his next rebuilding job, he landed at perhaps the most desolate of all college football outposts, Columbia, South Carolina. In 81 years of playing football before Carlin arrived, the South Carolina Gamecocks had never won more than seven games in a season, unless you count the 1906 team that went 8-2 and two with two victories against the local YMCA. The program had been invited to only two bowl games and lost both, including, coincidentally, the 1969 Gator Bowl against Carlin's West Virginia team. More than its on-field struggles, the football team in Columbia was hamstrung by a bumbling administration, struggling to fill the void left by Carlin's predecessor, Paul Dietzel. A giant figure in Gamecock history, Dietzel oversaw South Carolina's withdrawal from the ACC, penned the lyrics to the new team fight song adapted from a Broadway hit he heard, and even designed the Gamecock logo before leaving for Baton Rouge, where he would hire Bo Ryan after the 1979 season. Consider that when Carlin arrived in 1975, the university had just $16,000 in its athletics fund, and that at one point in 1977, the school had three athletics directors at the same time, including Carlin. When the school tried to remove him from that position, the case went to court, and Carlin paid nearly $4,000 out of his pocket to defend himself against his own university. Yet, against all odds, Carlin's methods were starting to show dividends in Columbia. Following back-to-back five-win seasons, there was optimism for the 1979 campaign. The athletics department, sensing the fans' weariness for a winner, printed bumper stickers that said, This is next year. But when the Gamecocks were blasted 28 to nothing in the season opener against the UNC Tar Heels, a new bumper sticker began to pop up around the state capitol that read, Carlin 79, be good or be gone. The coach and his team got the message. They streaked to an 8-3 finish, the best in school history, and capped it off with the berth in the Hall of Fame Bowl against Missouri. The 1979 season did more than just quell the unrest among the Gamecock faithful. It introduced the country to a powerful running back from Duluth, Georgia, named George Rogers. Rogers found his way to South Carolina's campus after surviving a childhood few would believe. With his parents separated and his father locked up in a Georgia jail after being convicted of murder, Rogers and his four siblings moved with their mother all across the state, from one housing project to another. Surviving on welfare rations and dressed in little more than rags, neighborhood kids teased Rogers, called him Dirty Boy. He hated it. He wanted to play football, but couldn't afford the $2 required for insurance. As a teenager in Atlanta, he shared a crowded apartment in a tenement slum with his mother, two brothers, and two sisters, each of whom had a baby. Enrolled at Roosevelt High, Rogers would often skip class and lie about his age for a chance to weed fields, wash dishes, or stack bags of concrete for $1.80 an hour. Remembering those bad times, Rogers would later say, I wanted to go to school, but it was hard to look at everybody eating and you didn't have lunch. Many a night he remembers crying himself to sleep, until, just before his sophomore year, Rogers decided to move back to Duluth. He convinced his aunt, Otella, that he was serious about trying to make something good out of his life, and she agreed to take him in. Living in Duluth and playing football for Coach Cecil Morris, Rogers thrived. 
As a senior, he ran for 2,300 yards and led his school to a state championship. Nearly every major program in America was clamoring to get him on campus, and he enrolled at the University of South Carolina in part because Coach Carlin told him he would have the chance to play as a freshman. He spent his first two years at fullback until a teammate's injury created an opportunity. In the final scrimmage before the 1979 season, starting tailback Johnny Wright tore up his knee. In the coaches' meeting later that day, Carlin asked the running backs coach, Bob Brown, which player was better, the second-string fullback or the second-string tailback. His idea was to use whichever backfield position on the team had the most depth to find Wright's replacement. Brown offered that the backup fullback, Steve Dorsey, was the better player. And so, less than a week before the first game of his junior year, Rodgers was moved from fullback to starting tailback. He finished the season with 10 straight games of 100 yards or more and had the second most rushing yards in the country, behind only Heisman Trophy winner Charles White of Southern California. Coach Brown recalled Rodgers' uniqueness at the position, telling Sports Illustrated, There are a lot of big backs and a lot of quick backs, but seldom do you see a big quick back. Here's legendary voice of NFL Films' John Facenda describing George Rogers for a promotional video made by the University of South Carolina. George Rogers was not a textbook runner, but his sprinter speed and lumberjack power proved more than a match for most defenders. Time after time, tacklers chased his lightning and shrunk beneath his thunder. When the 1980 season began, Rodgers was drawing Heisman Trophy consideration to go along with his biblical comparisons, but he suffered from a lack of exposure. During his first three years with the Gamecocks, the team had never played a game on national television. The university realized it had to do something to get his name onto the minds and pages of sports writers and created a publicity campaign. That meant lots of press tours and interviews, something the shy and soft-spoken Rodgers wasn't always comfortable with. Early in his senior year, he told a reporter... If you're going to write about me and all those yards, you got to write about my team, especially my offensive line, because without them, I couldn't gain a thing. Rodgers was right to credit the Gamecock offensive line, a snarling and experienced cast of characters that was as tough as it was eccentric. It included senior tackle and Penn State transfer George Schechterly, two senior tight ends and Ben Cornett, nicknamed Conan for his dedication in the weight room, and future first-round draft pick Willie Scott. It also featured Steve Gattell, a senior guard who came to South Carolina as a surfer from Daytona Beach, Florida, and as he and teammate Willie Scott remember, was quickly given the nickname Nature Boy for his resemblance to a certain famous professional wrestler. When I arrived at uh, Carolina, um, of course I was dark tanned and my hair was, you know, sun bleached. I, I had a resemblance to Ric Flair, the wrestler. Yeah, it was either uh, Ric Flair or Nature Boy. Either those were my two nicknames at Carolina. We thought it was Ric Flair, baby. Hey, Ric Flair, man, you ain't never seen get the blonde hair and pretty boy from Florida. Heck yeah, that's what we called him, Nature Boy. <laughs> the Nature Boy and his teammates came into 1980 angry. Despite the unprecedented success of the previous season, Gattel and the other seniors felt they had let a few close games slip away and that the 1980 team had both the schedule and the talent to make a run at the national championship while paving the way for Rodgers to capture the Heisman Trophy. Coach Carlin also sensed the opportunity for a special season and ventured into Columbia's famed five points area to ensure that distractions were kept to a minimum. He went around to all the bars in Columbia and tried to get some owners just don't serve the players during the season. Everybody agreed except one guy. He had enough pull knew enough people that afternoon that the guy told him no, there was an investigation or a, or a check of his establishment by alcohol, tobacco, and fire. And they found 88 discrepancies. So they told him he had to get everybody out because they were locking it up. And he said, well, how do I do my business? And the guy said, well, the first thing you need to do is talk to Coach Carl. So he goes over there and he walks into coach's office and he said, I'll do whatever you want. Jim made a call and that afternoon it seemed those discrepancies were all satisfied within about an hour and the guy opened his place back up. I can neither confirm or deny. <laughs> but, but Coach Carlin did carry some clout. There's no doubt about that. But Carlin's attempts to keep his players safe only went so far. 
and did not extend to the intersection of State Road 219 and Interstate 26, where just one week before the first game, Rogers fell asleep at the wheel, wrecking and flipping his 1980 Pontiac Phoenix. Rogers' mother had just purchased the car with some help from a southwestern Georgia cotton merchant, and George was driving the vehicle back to campus in the early morning hours before practice. Although the Gamecock star escaped with only minor injuries, the cause of his absence from practice was a closely guarded secret. We were practicing, and I see George sitting on the, standing on the sideline. I said, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, man? He said, well, he's got a concussion. How the hell did he get a concussion? I saw him last night. And, you know, back then, George did not break curfew rules by staying out after curfew. From what I understand, he got off early and met the guy in Greenville, and he had to wreck, if I remember, in Newberry County, where my hometown is, coming back down the highway, he fell asleep on the road and turned the car over, and I guess it was just lucky that he didn't get hurt even worse. But, yeah, I remember that like it was yesterday, man. How did he get a concussion? What, walking down the steps or something? You know, what, did he fall or something? And that's, oh, that's what happened. He had a wreck on the road, because none of us knew that now. Until it came out in the news a couple of days later, they kept that real quiet. The Gamecocks would make plenty of noise in their season opener against the University of the Pacific Tigers. Coached by Bob Toledo, the Tigers were a finesse squad that would attempt 40 passes in the game, but failed to score a point on a humid South Carolina evening that was described in the newspaper as too hot for football. The Gamecocks pounded the Tigers 37 to nothing in front of a sellout crowd that had come to see their Heisman candidate. Rogers started the game slowly thrown for a nine-yard loss on his first play and earning only meager yardage on his next six carries before breaking through with a 44-yard touchdown sprint at the end of the first quarter, helping the Gamecocks to a 16-0 halftime lead. They came here on a, on a Saturday night in South Carolina. It's probably about 90, 95 degrees with about 75 to 80% humidity, which we're used to. But Pacific, come from California, they said those guys were about to pass out at halftime. You know, they didn't even want to come back out at halftime. Rogers started the second half with a bang as he took a handoff and raced 72 yards down the right sideline on just the second play of the third quarter. I believe it was either a 48 or 49 pitch, which has a guard lead, basically student body, right or left. And I, I remember him going by me because uh, my linebacker fell down. So I was just running along out there, you know, and he, you know, ran by me. And I remember the crowd, you know, going bonkers. Uh, the cockpit's a really loud place. And yeah, that's probably my biggest memory is George running by me. Carlin would give his star player the rest of the night off. Rogers finished with 153 yards and two touchdowns on just 13 carries. The next week, South Carolina would host Wichita State as a final tune-up before flying to Los Angeles for a battle with that other USC and its star sophomore running back, Marcus Allen. If Coach Carlin taught Bobby Bowden anything about program building, the Florida State head coach was proving to be a quick learner. In 1979, after just four years in Tallahassee, Bowden had led the Knowles to an undefeated season. It was a near incomprehensible turnaround, considering Florida State went 0-11 in 1973 and was considering shutting down the football program before Bowden arrived. In Tiger Stadium, halfway through the first game of 1980, year five of the Bowden era was off to a strong, if unspectacular, start. A constant rain forced the Seminoles to play a conservative style of offense, a departure from the more wide-open attack that Bowden's teams were known for. On this night, however, little offense was required. The Knolls' defense was shutting down everything in purple, including the fans. The stories of the fans and how loud the stadium was was talked about quite often leading up to that game, but the one thing that I remembered, it didn't stay loud very long. We were able to take the crowd out of it. I remember turning to Reggie and saying, listen how quiet it is. Two more second-half turnovers by LSU led to 10 points for the visitors, and Florida State left Death Valley with a 16-0 win, the first time the Tigers had been shut out in a season opener in 30 years. LSU defensive tackle Benji Thibodeau said after the game, if we ever play that bad again, 80,000 people should get their money back. It was not the debut first-time head coach Jerry Stovall had hoped for. The 39-year-old wore a beige suit on the sidelines for his first game as the Tigers' coach. By the end of the first quarter, the back and shoulders of his jacket were noticeably soaked through with perspiration, no doubt caused by the two early LSU fumbles and a smothering Seminole defense. After the game, Stovall, 
whose team managed to gain just 239 yards on the night, would quip that his sweat-soaked suit was the only offensive thing that LSU did all night. The Tigers would finish the season 7-4, and four, and Stovall would coach for three more years in Baton Rouge. He won National Coach of the Year honors following the 1982 season, but was dismissed just one year later, after finishing 4-7. and seven. He never coached football again. Florida State flew home to Tallahassee, where adoring fans waited until 2 in the morning to catch sight of their returning heroes. The Seminoles could look forward to back-to-back home games against Louisville and East Carolina, before embarking on a murderer's row of consecutive games against Miami, Nebraska, and Pittsburgh. Meanwhile, in steamy Knoxville, Tennessee, Georgia could not afford to look ahead, as it came out of the locker room trailing 9-0, and its debutante running back, Herschel Walker, going nowhere, with his first nine carries netting only 15 yards. Then, things went from bad to worse, when the Vols struck like lightning, on a two-play drive that ended with a Mike Miller touchdown to make the lead 15-0. Tennessee coach Johnny Majors elected to go for two, but Georgia, in a sign of things to come, turned the Volunteers away, and the missed opportunity would turn out to be the difference in the game. With just 18 minutes left, Georgia finally broke through on a mad scramble following a mishandled punt by Tennessee returner Bill Bates. Fourth and five, and young Broadway kick with eight men coming on him. And the kick is good, long, going to come down inside the 30, and we hit him. He fumbled the ball, and the dog missed it. It's rolling to 10, to 7, to 5. We fumble it again. We fumble it. It's in the end zone. Get on that ball. It's on the back of the end zone. We had three men knock it 20 yards. We'd land on it on our chest. We landed on it with our heads, and it went 20 more yards. Now they argue who got it as it went out of bounds. They gave us two points, and we could have scored on the play. Very, very, very easy. People just diving on it, and it would squirt nine more yards, and somebody else would land on it, it would squirt again. This has not been a night for old lady luck. The wild sequence seemed to ignite the Georgia team, and for Bates, his evening was about to get even worse. After receiving the free kick, the Bulldogs drove to the Tennessee 16-yard line. Georgia offensive coordinator George Hafner called a toss sweep, and Walker took the pitch from Ballou and ran through the line and into history. Georgia knocking on the door. They're on the Tennessee 16. Tennessee has dominated this one. They gave us a break. We couldn't use it. Then we gave them a couple. 15-2 Tennessee leading. Crowd roaring against Georgia, trying to make them drop it so they can't hear. We hand it off to Herschel. There's a hole. Five, 10, 12. He's running over people. Oh, you Herschel Walker. My God almighty, he ran right through two men. Herschel ran right over two men. They had him dead away inside the nine. Herschel Walker went 16 yards. He drove right over Orange Church, just driving and running with those big fives. My God, a freshman. Years later, Bates, who played 15 seasons in the NFL and was a three-time Super Bowl champion, remembered of the play, I looked into Herschel's eyes and realized he wasn't going to make a move. The next thing I knew... I had footprints on my chest and saw number 34 running into the end zone for a touchdown. Momentum was running with the dogs, and Georgia recovered another Tennessee fumble that led to Walker's second touchdown run of the night. Rex Robinson made the extra point, and Georgia now held a one-point lead, 16-15, with 11 minutes to go in the game. Somehow, the Volunteers picked themselves up from the canvas after Georgia's haymaker and drove the ball to the Bulldogs' five-yard line with just three minutes to play and needing only a field goal to take the lead. On first down, Pace called for a lead running play, and Irk countered with a middle blitz. Tailback Len Ford took a pitch and started right, and as he cut back towards a hole, was met by linebacker Nate Taylor, and the ball popped free. Taylor's teammate, Pat McShay, was supposed to be trailing the play upfield, but had gotten folded back inside. Suddenly at the right place at the right time, he fell on the ball and survived being choked in a pileup of players to claim possession for Georgia. Deep in their own end, the Bulldogs trusted Walker with three straight runs and then sent out walk-on sophomore Jim Broadway to punt. Broadway was only playing in this game, his first-ever varsity contest, because Georgia's senior punter had been injured in practice earlier in the week. Dooley called it the most tense he'd ever been as a coach as he watched Broadway standing in his own end zone, awaiting the snap. Despite the pressure, Broadway boomed a 47-yard punt and Georgia's defense sealed the win with a fourth-down sack. The Bulldogs had survived and would now return to Athens for a five-game homestand. 
Walker finished the game with 84 yards and two touchdowns, and on Monday, Dooley informed the team that the freshman would now be the new first-string tailback. Following the game, Coach Dooley was escorted out of the raucous Bulldog locker room to a quiet interview space for the post-game radio show. When only a few media members trickled in to listen to the head coach's comments, Dooley was asked where the rest of the writers were. With Herschel, he grinned. The freshman sensation had come to Knoxville a third-string running back, but he had left it a star. Next week on Hidden Yardage, the story of the 1980 college football season. Leister back to pass as Rush throws the bomb up the middle. Donnelly's got it. Touchdown, Ohio State. Top-ranked Ohio State opens its championship campaign with an unexpected test in the horseshoe, while Dan Marino, Hugh Green, and the Pitt Panthers put their preseason hype to the test. Plus, the North Carolina Tar Heels and their dynamic linebacker Lawrence Taylor head to Lubbock, Texas, looking for respect in a showdown with the Red Raiders. The Hidden Yardage podcast is researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Moore. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For a list of everybody that appeared in this episode, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. There you'll find full transcripts of every show, plus schedules, stats, and standings from the 1980 season. Please email your questions and comments to me at joe at hiddenyardagepodcast.com. This podcast is made possible through Moonlight Magic Productions. Thank you for listening. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history. But as far as I'm concerned, We're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at Sports historynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.